Your name's not down, you're not coming in. Hello, I'm Tom Latcham, and this is another edition of Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Today's guest is one of the most successful people ever to come out of Mansfield. <laughs> Not sure it's great, Pickens, to be honest. Uh, but he's probably all your number one uh, to the average night is Raver, unless you're a big fan of Richard Bacon or Rebecca Adlington. Uh, Gary Jack founded and ran East Midlands-based event Viabolite for 14 years between 1993 and 2007, putting on parties around the UK that he proudly says were all about what the Ravers wanted. He's also popular with artists, and as our old mate Scorpio says, he's one of the best promoters ever, and the only one who turned around and gave you extra as he had a good night when there were plenty who asked for a discount on a choir tonight. Not only that, but he never gives interviews, but he's chosen Raw to be his first in 25 years. So shall we say hello to him and bring him in? It's Mr. Gary Viberlite. How are you doing, Gary? Fine, thank you. How are yourself? I'm all right. So that so a lot of people won't know what you look like. So there is the mysterious Gary Jack. <laughs> I have changed a little bit. I've still got teeth, but you can't see them. <laughs> uh, wonderful teeth you've got too. Um, so I said that you don't tend to give many interviews. Uh, as I say, this is the first in around about 25 years. So why now and why Raw? We often get... Um... I have lots of requests to do similar type of things, to be honest, uh, interviews. Um, I think it's about the situation that the whole country is facing at the moment. Uh, we're all in this COVID pandemic situation and it's caused us to reflect upon our past and our um, the times we did share together and stuff like that. The rise of social media, you could see the interest in remembering the good old days, so to speak. Um, at first, um, when you contacted me, Tom, personally, um, I think you messaged me on Facebook Messenger and I probably blanked you like I would do with most people. I think you did. Yeah, you rude bastard. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just... There's always an alternative method to why people want to, and I've got really nothing to, to add to anything that I thought so. But after reading, um, after listening to Paul O's, and I went back and listened to Paul O's, and it basically, Paul O sort of only touched on the icing on the cake of what was happening behind the scenes, to be honest. <laughs> so there is a story to be told, but, you know... Uh, Everybody's got a story to be told, you know, and everybody's story is unique. Um, the reason I didn't get in touch straight away is because though those stories are personal to myself, they're personal to artists that I worked with or artists that we didn't get on with. We had we all had our grievances and ears and uh, uh, but I think that in the spirit of coming together uh, in like in the raving day, so to speak, I think the best thing that um, that can come out of this pandemic is if that with the use of this platform, we can all basically have our say on our stories. We can air our grievances. Um, we can put misdemeanors to one side and let's just Let's just, you know, get other promoters to come in and tell it from their story. We've lost too many people. You know, we've lost the likes of Murray, the recent death of Bogey from the Pleasure Dome. That sort of hit hard. That was during the COVID. Although he didn't die of COVID, you know, it sort of hit home. And I was thinking, this scene has been around for 30 years. You know, it's a decade, three decades of music. It's touched so many people's lives. Yet, these people are dying you know, COVID's brought it home a little bit faster. But hopefully, with after speaking to yourselves, that we could all come together on a platform and hear our grievances and our uh, things. And in the like you say, in the spirit of raving, uh, tell the story of rave. You know, from everybody's perspective. You know, like I say, we've got a story. Um, let's hear some of those grievances. At first, it still touched home with me, and I didn't want to get involved. Um, but then I listened to a few more of your podcasts um, 
I listened to MCMC and uh, I hadn't realised at the time that the lengths and breadths that we went to to get MC MC to come up and up up to up the north, should we say, was uh, immense. But at the time, I hadn't known that MCMC was going through difficulties like that down in London. So we offered him a branch, really. And seeing that in the interview and how touched MCMC was with the respect and everything that he got from Viberlite and the respect that he had for Viberlite. Um, so I just thought, yeah, there is a story to tell, you know. And then I listened to your Flux um, interview, and that was just an amazing story. I, I mean, I thought I knew most of the things that had gone off in the rave scene, obviously. I, 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 you know, I had no idea that was happening and the, in, in the part that he played in it. But in the spirit of rave, I hope all people, and all promoters, all DJs, all artists, no matter what we think of each other or what our things have been in the past, we've got to look at what we've created. This is a dance scene that's lasted 30 years, right? Uh, and everybody's got a reason for being in the scene for one reason or another, and what, what and they all want something out of that. But as a, a raver, to go on and then hold your own rave and was just a step in the right direction, I think, for me. It's uh, I think to understand how Viberlite comes about, you've got to experience part of being a raver first, any, any raver. Um, and it was that element of surprise and you could do what you want it was amazing how seeing this the scene uh if, you know if you're going back to the early days when i was um a doorman back in jesus christ uh i can't remember when it was 89 victorian 19, times uh, in, it feels like it. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think um, I was a doorman at the Roxy's nightclub. I, I ended up at the Roxy's nightclub. It was at the end of my doorman career, really. Um, I was a, a market trader from Mansfield by daytime, a doorman in Mansfield by night. This is a rough pit mining town. Or the prejudices and, and the, the, the um, way that society responded to the prejudice back then was a different world to the rave side of things. You know, rave encompassed a different sort of crowd. You know, when I was a doorman on Mansfield, we'd be fighting every Friday and Saturday night, no matter what weekend it was. <laughs> you know, it was guaranteed, you know. And then you'd... you'd um, after finishing at 11 o'clock on the door, I'd drive over to Sheffield and take, because I was young, I had a car. I was 18 when I was working on the doors, but I was into bodybuilding and that as, as, a, as a young lad. Um, so I drove door the doorman and myself over to Roxy's at Sheffield afterwards, which the hitman and her was there, uh, which which was very interesting in its own right, sort of say. Um, it was a huge success on TV. People wanted to be seen out clubbing, seen out dancing, their chance to get on TV. It was just huge. But as a doorman back then, drugs were never even really spoke about. But towards the back end of the Hitman and Her, they was becoming more and more relevant within the industry. And at the same time as Hitman and Her was going on, you had got your... Acid House parties, uh, you're talking 19, what, 88, 89, uh, probably 86, really, 86 to 89. So that was when I was fully-fledged dormant. So uh, you were seeing these events spark up left, right and centre and people talking about them, but it was all different drugs and it was the bleeps and breaks and... Um, the acid out era really um, and that's probably where the, the rave scene started for me myself I think um, there was so, obviously the pipe sorry so, no no so how do you go from running the door and spotting that there's a, some sort of trend blowing uh, to going you know I want to be a part of this and I and then going to become on to be one of the, the most eminent promoters in that music scene eventually there was 
the trouble had started at Roxy's and there was a huge fight one night there and I just got involved in a fight taking somebody who wasn't allowed on the dance floor with a glass for goodness sake you know it's one of those and it started out of nothing and I just thought I've had enough of this to be honest I've you know I need to buckle down and put my head in but I, I started seeing uh, DJ Rush as we all know um, and he was uh, in a club in Mansfield uh, not Mansfield, should I say. One of the late night clubs that first started open was Venus in Nottingham. It operated till three, four o'clock when all other nightclubs and even Hitman and Earl was closing at two o'clock. It was probably one of the first legal venues to open past two o'clock. So I, I, was, uh, I was going there after Roxy's basically at the start. And then all of a sudden, I was listening, listening to Nottingham's Rave FM and listening to all the DJs, listening to underground sounds and things like that. Um, and then it got introduced to James Bailey, who was running the, this Venus nightclub. Um, he went on to uh, manage DJ Sasha, uh, as we all know. Uh, I understand the, the sort of that scene back then, um, I think DJ Sai had just come runner-up in the DMC Scratch Master Championships. That sort of expelled his him into the dance scene. He was, you know, he was, he was on Rave FM, and yeah, I'm sure Sai can fill you in on more details than he's doing. But he was exposed to that side of things, really. Um, Les was going out to the illegal rave parties. You know, um, he was um, going out to the DIY events in Nottingham. Uh, big crew there that was putting on all the free parties. Um, it was the start of, like I say, it was during the Acid House days when people were breaking into warehouses and putting 5,000 people in there with, you know, no sanitation, no toilets, fire doors locked. It was just a death trap, really, that was that was about to happen. And at the same time, those sort of things was going on. You'd had... Um, Shelley's in Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah, you had your amnesia houses that were starting. You know, you're talking, you're going out on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night because you couldn't get this music on a Friday and Saturday. You know, for a nightclub to fill their doors on a Wednesday or a Thursday night and then have the normal train on a Friday and Saturday was just was just an opening, just, an, you know, that obviously club owners wanted to get on board with really uh which i suppose that really introduced me to sort of the yard in mansfield which was owned by david and paul um they had the insight into doing it they had a residence djs there one guest dj every weekend um you know you'd you, you'd go there it was and it was about the residents building up the night uh, and and then the guest DJ would turn up on a Thursday night. You'd listen to Groove Ride. You pay three or four quid to go in or something like that, <laughs> you know. Uh, but there's nowhere to go on Friday or Saturday. You'd, you'd have to go to the uh, the chalets or the big events and stuff like that. I mean, back those we're talking. My my events was uh, Abnesia House, Pandemonium, uh, like I say, chalets. What was it about those raves that particularly appealed to you that you thought uh, did so well that you then thought in the future you wanted to distill that into your own style? The of biggest rave really was Abnesia House at Castle Donington. It was, you know, quite local to us. It was uh, probably the biggest venue there. Uh, it was those days you would be listening to Groove Rider, Carl Cox, uh, Frankie Valentine so you'd ha have a mixture of hardcore well it wasn't called hardcore then it was just called rave uh, you'd have techno house music garage sort of drum and bass it was all in the same arena and it, it, everybody was there for one reason whether you liked that particular style of music or not you you listen, you was there you was there to listen to Groove Ride you listened to Groove Ride and if Frankie Valentine come on you sat down it, uh, you'd seen at that big rave, I actually seen a split in the crowd, even in those early 89, 90s raves. But it wasn't a split in the crowd, you know what I mean? It was more of a, 
you went there, there might have been five or six people on the lineup you liked, and you paid 25 quid or 20 quid or whatever it was back those days. But you got, you'd pay that to listen to one artist or listen to two artists, you know what I mean? And then, like, if you didn't, didn't like the house music side of things, you'd go and sit down or you'd explore the venue or, you, you know, you, it wasn't, it was, it's about the moment. We're living in the moment, basically, at the time. So, yeah, it's really my my raving past really and the, the, but the, i wasn't getting um what i wanted from the events what was that there was it was i felt more could have been done you know to the events there was like there was music going on but bearing in mind lazy, everybody... slightly lazy production yeah, a lazy production. Yeah, lazy and not lazy. I can't. I can't say it was because I don't know the circumstances those raves was in. It was expensive events to put on. Castle Donington was like a six thousand capacity one room venue. You know, if you had the stage in the middle, it worked. If you had it at the end, it worked. If, you know, sometimes it did. Sometimes it didn't. It had um, ongoing noise problems, and uh, it was a fine until twelve o'clock. And at twelve o'clock, it sort of went quiet. It, yeah, it had its problems. The visualization wasn't there. There was it just didn't feel for the eight or nine hours that there was enough. Don't get me wrong; the events were brilliant. Everybody enjoyed them. But I just felt they could have been more production. I think. You know, I want. I don't know what I was want, looking for. I don't know what I was looking for. But I knew that it could be. It could be better. Let's simply say that way. Okay. The queuing was a nightmare, for instance, outside any of these raves. You could queue for two, three hours to get oh, so in. You, that so that was something you tried to improve then? That, that, was, that was one major thing that we had to improve. How know? do you improve a queuing system? <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Understanding the procedures going through, you right. know, um, um, what was actually happening. The doormans didn't really know what was actually happening. It was come from an era when this is all brand new, you know what I mean? There was uh, searches in place, but not necessarily the right searches, or it was not taking time, or the queuing system wasn't sorted out, etc., etc. And it's some ways to this day, it's still the same, don't get me wrong. Well, I wonder whether that's probably uh, a kickback from your time as a, as a doorman, because you know yeah, you, you, I, you understand how you can speed that process up yourself because you've done it. You can understand how between that process up. Simple, simple rules and regulations like if everyone's got to empty the pockets, then have somebody outside of the. You know, if there's ten people being searched, get the next ten people to put their stuff into a bowl. You know what I mean? So it speeded it up that way. Separate men from women so that women only search women. It was, it was, it, it was from the dormant experience that that could have been speeded up. To be honest. Okay. So I had skill set that. I was not aware of at the time. So okay, so cues was one thing. What else did you... What were the key elements that you felt were missing from raves and that you wanted to take into your own events? Production? Um, production, really. I think production was a, a big thing for me. It was not about... So is it just about, about the music, your, your, it was about the whole experience. So is it just you were sort of thinking, I don't know what it is, but you need to get creative with something. And actually thinking every event we're going to have in the future, you're going to try to think of something that you can do to make it a, a sort of one-off experience. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was missing first impressions count. So when you walk into a venue and it's just a blank empty room with a stage at one end and a few lights and the DJ, that's it for the entire night. You're there for the music. We was there for the music. You know what I mean? It was, it was a different vibe. But as I got further and further into going out regular raving and I was thinking could be more done to this why aren't people doing more about this you know don't get me wrong that changed when I went to um, Fantasia <laughs> Fantasia sort of was it just come from nowhere as far as I was concerned I was going to these um, local raves free illegal raves the DIY things in Nottingham the uh, the Castle Donington thing, uh, and then Fantasia. I think my first one was at Matcham Stadium back in eighty eight, eighty nine, and the the lineups were pretty similar to what Amnesia House was doing. But they just had something on the fly that attracted me. 
an MC that I'd never heard of before, MC Robbie D. And he was going to be flying over the stage. What? <laughs> How is this going to happen? I had to go there. It was Bournemouth. It was a five-hour drive for that event. <laughs> I was like, I'm going down to see this. Just so Ravens are see. so easily swayed. We'll make someone fly over the stage well, and everyone's I driving five hours down to Bournemouth. You know, it's like... <laughs> It was May, I think. It was a summer bank holiday. It was May bank holiday weekend. The weather was scorching hot. It was a big outdoor event. It was nothing I'd experienced before. But Fantasia knew how to put a show on. They had the production. They had what I thought was missing. Do you know what I mean? It was like the production was there. The stage set up there. This MC flying across the stage <laughs> or being winched up. Whatever happened, it was like... Yeah, I mean, he wasn't actually flying, Gary. I'll tell you that now. I don't know. No, if, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Shat he might have been flying in his own mind, but probably <laughs> on, a, on a pulley system. <laughs> but it was just those those sort of things. You know what I mean? I mean, promoters had a thing back then of is listing um, attractions on their flyers, right? Which was gobos and lasers, and and nobody knew what they was. Nobody knew anything. I, I still don't know what uh, a, an, an XK sound system is. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it sounds impressive, but I've got no clue. <laughs> the most important thing was we had to have a really good sound system, right? We had to have a good sound system. So it was 400K turbo, this, that, and the other. And everybody, you know, promoters seen that as a, a, a way of getting people to your event. This sounds, the sound was right. It wasn't right. No matter how good the sound system was at, at Castle Donington, if you had to turn it down, it was still going to be shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but by twelve o'clock, everybody was on the vibe, so to speak. Your name's not Dan. You're not coming. In. And so, what was it then? Having been to all those events as a raver, worked as a doorman before that, knowing that that something wasn't quite right, and you wanted to improve and change something. How did you go from there to a vibe light? Tell me about tell me about how you decided to start vibe light. How you came up with the concept? I'm told, by the way, uh, Majika played a crucial role, and uh, he, he. So it's it's worth it's worth discussing Majika's role, I think, as well. Well, it is worth discussing Majika's role. Majika, um, Majika's Majika. End of the day, uh, uh, Majika's role. I have to go a little bit further back, I think, just before, you know, the raving started, before we get to understand Majika's role in the situation. You know, we was going to the yard on Thursday nights in Mansfield and the whole thing about Venue 44, it wasn't open back then. You know, this was the yard in 1988, 89, like I say, around the times of you know, the Amnesia the Andromedas and uh, the Pandemoniums, the Fantasias, the Dreamscapes really was breaking out and the Milwaukee's events and things like that. So we got friendly as ravers with artists and MCs and DJs. Uh, you'd see them all over the place and you, you'd become a face to them, someone you could chat to, someone they could rely on. So friendships were built up before before we even started Vibelite. Um, we was always going to put something on. But it wasn't 89. Don't forget, Vibelite didn't start till 93. So there's, you know, four years there that we was out constantly raving, you know. Um, so the friendships was built up before before all that, you know, with, with artists. And we was always going to do something. We didn't know we was going to do something. It was a, it was a coincidence that it happened um venue 44 opened and the reason venue 44 opened is because the yard was doing so well on a thursday night that david and paul who owned the yard um, wanted to expand on the success that it was getting and they uh, the only venue that they sort of understood and thought that would work for them was would be castle donington you know um so I later found this out. This is not something that I knew at the particular time, but they got into a bidding war to hire Castle Donington. And when it first opened, it was a pound a head, £6,000 to hire the venue. Back in 88, 89, it was a lot of money. Um, 
Ray got into a bidding war and put one event on the higher of the venue before you put any sound system or anything in, went up to about £30,000. And they sat and thought about it. I think they went or bid up to £30,000 and then got outbid by some other promoter. I have no idea who it was. And they looked at it and they came up with, there was a venue in Mansfield that I'd been to beforehand as, as a market trader to have our do there. It wasn't called Venue 44 back then. It was just a, a hall you hired out to have functions in a function room, if you like. Um, they took over that. It was a council-run building. They used the money that they was going to put in to put on this big event, the £30,000, to set that up and rip the venue out and fit it with a sound system, etc., etc., and to make an all-night event. So the idea was, I think, would be initially behind it, they'd move the Thursday nights to a Friday in the, in the yard in Mansfield, and then they'd run from 8.30 till 1.30, or 8.30 till 2 o'clock, and then they'd open Zest, as it was called then, in Mansfield uh, at 1.30 till 6 o'clock. So it's a continuation. They've got a captive crowd. So those crowds was going to service stations after two o'clock and meeting. You know all the old sort of stories you hear about people meeting up. Um, you know uh, the only other club at Brown really that I thought of was possibly Club Kinetic. Back then, they were filling their club every Friday night, seventeen, eighteen hundred people every Friday night with one guest DJ, you know, it was, seemed to be, it was more of a club vibe rather than a, a big event type, type thing. It was a different scenario, if you like. It was, it was a more of a coming together as a group of friends or groups of friends from different areas, but in a, you felt in a safe environment, you know, it was a, if you was a regular at the club, I mean, the very first day, that the very first night I walked into venue 44 on the first night was, I think, November 91 when it opened. I went in there with my raving partner back then, which was Claire Taylor. And uh, we used to go everywhere together. The, the warehouse in Doncaster, and, and just everywhere, went everywhere, Donington, uh, everywhere. Pleasure Dome at the Skegness, you know, that was quite a, a big one. When they moved to on the seafront on the, underneath the dome, in, that was uh, not the dome, not the fancy island, but the dome at the front uh, of the beach at Skegness, um, that was a huge, like a roller rink, really. It, it was, had slide, the dance floor had slides all the way around and it's sort of a bit in the middle. Um, yeah, that was a different sort of to vibe, you know. I mean, Going back to the Marcus, you know, I was at, before that, the other things that I'd like to mention was probably Marcus Garvey in Nottingham. That was an all-night event. You know, this was happening around the same time as this yard was happening. So you'd have Marcus Garvey in Nottingham was an all-night event. Uh, and then Mansfield on a Thursday night. And then Castle Donington every two or three months. So you, the North, you didn't have to travel any further than that. It was It was spread quite evenly across there. So, with the very first night of venue, I, I said to Claire, I'm going to run this place one day. And I'll never forget that day. That was in 91. Mm -hmm. uh, as it happened, they uh, was doing okay, but they was businessmen, I think, you know, club owners uh, that didn't really understand it, that lent more towards the house side of the music. So you'd go to Zest on a Friday night, you'd have Jumping Jack Frost one week, you'd have Sasha the next week, you'd have Laurent Garnier the next week. But there wasn't people that you go into Amnesia House or you go into the Eclipse or you go into Shelley's. It wasn't the DJs that you was getting, you know, it was a, a mixed bag, it was a spoiled choice. And that's when I think you understood the, the strength of having a good residency team there. Because the residents, the resident DJs were Chris Fern and Fergus for Venue 44 then. They knew what the crowd wants. So if you had Laurent Garnier come in, who would kill the dance floor, or you don't have like 40 or 50 people on a dance floor because they was into Laurent Garnier. Uh, um, 
they knew how to bring the night back up. So I think residents for me stood out early on in that in that thing. It was residents that made a club. You know, you go to Club Kinetic, it was brisk as a resident DJ that could always pull it back round after a DJ, whether they plummeted or whether they didn't plummet, you know. Um, so I think as an early raver and uh, getting to know Paul and Wayne Dawson, who was the manager then, um, and they didn't understand the rave scene. They wasn't going to rave. They understood the house side of things. Um, and I was saying, I want to see such and such. I want to see this DJ. I want to see that DJ, you know. Um, and when they got them there, uh, when they finally booked them, they had really good, very busy nights. So I became sort of a, a raver that was sort of consulting with venue owners to get the DJs that I knew that our group of people and the people that was going to Venue 44 wanted to see, you know. So it was just a, all that, I didn't, didn't charge anything for that. I just wanted to see that artist <laughs> at my club. You know, I remember Amnesia House once and um, going there as a raver and um, Top Buzz hadn't turned up to, to what was called Zest. I think it was twice in a row they were booked and they hadn't turned up. As Raver, that really pisses you off. You know, it really pisses you off. You might have gone to see that Top Buzz. You know, there was an amazing double act, right? And for them not to turn up at events, it was all about this is why Vibalite started. You know, it was certain things. There was, um, I remember going back to that Amnesia House thing, going and and uh, going in and being off my head and thought, I'm not having this. Top Buzz is on stage here. Why have they not turned up? So I wrote a note and I walked up and gave it to the MC Patrick and he, and he, he stopped the rain <laughs> and said, I've just been handed this note. I want to know, I want, this raver wants to know why we haven't turned up at, at Zest in Mansfield twice in a row. And he said, he apologised on stage and he said, the next time they'd be booked there, he'd definitely turn up. And I was so chuffed as a raver. I, I'd made that happen, you know what I mean? And right. To go back to the club and say, right, book top boys, book top boys, book top boys, they'll definitely come, they'll definitely come. And then them to come and then and it explode and it was one of the busiest nights that the club had ever seen. I was thinking, I know what I'm fucking talking about here. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. Well, we hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw. But now's where we ask you, inevitably, for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages out of this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great. Great news and thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, we've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw, and that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. And if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you hope you're enjoying it and yeah. so and so how did you come up with the name Vibalite and and who designed that famous logo which has been subsequently ripped off by companies i'm sure we'll come to that later <laughs> yes definitely um what can i say really um well it was like running at the club the venue 44 venue 44 then started the house side of things which was renaissance you know it had a a, a party there they wanted to start a regular saturday night event called renaissance they had the they had the hardcore scene, the rave scene, classed up with fright. I think they've seen an expert, uh, a gap in the market, 
And um, Sasha was a huge DJ, you know what I mean? A huge DJ. And to bag him as a resident DJ was a huge thing, you know, it was a similar sort of time. As I said, then there was Sasha and Carl Cox that was approached to become residents at Venue 44. Renaissance and Jeff Oaks, who owned Renaissance, had got a plan and what he wanted to do with it. Um, it was very strict on the entrance. I mean, let's get one thing straight about Venue 44. Never had a license. <laughs> never had a license. Right. So it didn't run like normal raves or normal nightclubs. Um, it was a private members club. Right. So a club that was opening at half past one, two o'clock in the morning, you couldn't serve alcohol. You were drinking water, you were drinking coke, you were drinking fizzy pop, mainly water, everybody was on water and other things, obviously. Um, but for a club to open at one o'clock, you know, one o'clock and just serve water is unheard of, really, back in them days. Um, anyway, how was this club going to work without alcohol? You know what I mean? It was... Jeff, Jeff had got a plan to make Renaissance work, and I think he'd gone into about three or four months, and they basically wasn't letting people in from Mansfield. Don't forget, we was in Mansfield, we was in this venue 44, they were still fighting in the town centre, left, right and centre, you know, yet you've got this, an oasis of people that, you know, was, come from, and the, the media was, portraying rave as bad and dirty and people was dying etc etc but that wasn't my experience of raving you know i was dancing with lawyers and teachers and businessmen and cashiers and people that hadn't got a job and people that was out of work and it was a mix of black and white and gay and lesbians and it, it made no difference this is in mansfield you know, a mining town, we, like I say, they were still fighting less than a mile away in the town centre. If I was a doorman, I'd be throwing people out. Yet this, no trouble whatsoever. People just came in from whatever life they came in and they just was there for the music. They was there for the entertainment. They was experiencing it. I think um, one person we used to go out with, which was Martin's brother, which was Fossil, Fossil Raver, I have to mention Fossil Raver because he was one of the highlights. He was the oldest Raver. He was a hippie. How He'd been through it? the mods. He was, I, he's still alive today, so I'd still speak to him today. But, you know, I was 25, he was 45, so to speak. <laughs> I and love that he, he was 45 and he was called Fossil. I mean, that's yeah. only eight. That's only <laughs> yeah. how, old are, how old are you now, Gary? 54. <laughs> well, there you go, you Fossil Fossil. <laughs> But at the time, you know, he was a young man, and, and he, but he wasn't a foss, he wasn't a raver that just attended. He shocked out, he big fish, little fish, everything glow sticks, you know, attention-seeking raver. <laughs> uh, so he was sort of our influence into letting us know that these times was the best times we'd ever probably live, and you need to live in that moment, basically. Um, so... Going about how Viberlight was set up was about the friendship we built, the Renaissance um, era, Venue 44, before Viberlight started. Then, of course, like most places, there was the inevitable drug raid, which happened um, the night before the huge Book of Love event. You know, I can't remember the name. Mickey Linus is the promoter. But Mickey Linus was doing this thing where he was getting married on stage at a rave and it was it was a complete sellout. The whole thing was fantastic way, you know, of going. I'd got tickets for to go to the Saturday night, but the club we had Fabio and Groove Rider on the Friday night and the 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 venue got raided basically. Um, it was rumours that Dorman was dealing and all sorts of things like that. Insisting a, a law case and all the promoter, uh, the promoter, not the promoters, the Dorman was arrested and the uh, owners were arrested and charged. It went on and I think this basically had its toll on the owners, the businessmen who just wanted to make money, I suppose, really. Um, and they were decided to close the venue down, or they were going to close the venue down. But Paul's brother jumped on board, and they started a night called Equinox. 
uh, and that sort of worked for a few weeks, but it wasn't getting the crowds in. Um, so we came up with an idea. By this time, he was looking at venues to hire things. I mean, myself and um, Martin, we'd been going there. We were looking at venues to put something on. We hadn't decided what we was going to do or how we was going to come about it. Um, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to do the production side of things. We knew we wanted to make sure the queuing system was down. We knew we wanted to... Um, we the scene was in a very difficult place. Your Mickey Linus was, was booking like you sort of drum and bass DJs. There wasn't a happy hardcore scene as such. They was it was dwindling a little bit if if I'm honest. Um, a house scene had broke away from the hardcore scene, and the music had started to get pigeonholed if you like. Um, but as a raver, I'd like the drum and bass. I like the hardcore. I like the techno. I didn't want a whole night of it, if you know what I mean. So it was about creating what I wanted as a raver, or what we wanted as a group of ravers to celebrate the night. Mm. Um, so it was about having a bit of hardcore, it's a bit of a bit of drum and bass, a bit of techno, and the beauty of Mansfield and the beauty of of Zester and and was you had a real loyal crowd that danced to absolutely everything. You know what I mean? It was like... Do you think that's to do with being in the Midlands? Because I, I definitely... The further north you go, obviously, we, you know, yeah. anyone who listens to this podcast over the years knows, uh, and even yeah. if, they, if they didn't know before, that, that it goes harder the further north you go and more breakbeat-based the more yeah. further south you go. Is just, is that, you think, your policy... You know, what you were talking about with Mansfield and the desire in Manchester that then reflected in your music policy was because it was sort of in the middle of both those things. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, you could see that the Renaissance was pulling. It was a sellout. By the, by the 12th week, it was selling out on there. They'd got a crowd that was not ravers. They was dressing smarter. They was a little bit up themselves, if you know what I mean. They was pulling away from the rave scene. And Sasha was ahead of that. Sasha was huge, don't get me wrong. Sasha was a massive to catch him as a, a resident DJ. It was, it was huge. But... Um, the raid sort of put a whole damper on things, if I'm if I'm honest. And uh, the um, I think the owners was getting fed up with it. And uh, we come along uh, and we uh, came up with a plan um, to put on Vibalite, basically. But it come at the wrong time <laughs> because the owners wanted to close the venue down. So. It was a do or die situation, you know. Um, I didn't. I was self-employed. I didn't really want to do this as a business. It was more of a hobby, um, and it's a. It became very much a different ball game altogether. You soon find out. Um, and so, Vibalite was born out of wanting to do something. I can remember going looking at a venue before we did Vibalite. Was going back to the Marcus Garvey, for instance, in Nottingham. And Marcus Garvey had got quite a reputation by that time. I mean, they had football-style turnstiles on the doors to get in the metal turnstiles. And I was there with the venue manager one day, and I was just looking round at the venue, and there was, look, I said, what's those holes in the ceiling? He went, um, those holes are, um, when the kids get really excited, they let their guns off and their bullet holes in the roof. And I'm thinking, I don't need to be putting a rave on here. This is not the intention of what I want to do. You know, there was a lot of bad things going on. There was rumours that DJs weren't showing up. Uh, DJs weren't getting paid. Um, people was overfilling the venues. People was turning the water off. As a raver, these all mattered. These was all important parts of the night. Safety and everything was being compromised by some, you know, promoters along the way, you know. Um we could put all those things right with Vibalite. We could we could do what we wanted to do with Vibalite, you know. So we made it, we we set up with Vibalite. It wasn't going to be called Vibalite. I can't remember the name was coming to come. We just wanted to put an event on. It wasn't Vibalite. Um, we'd built a relationship with Majika and Mongoose and Rush and Fergus, but not necessarily Fergus at the time because he was an old venue forty four um, resident DJ. We wanted to try something new. 
um, we knew that residents in a club could hold the club together and that was a, an important factor so we knew we wanted to get residents right a DJ that could mix from happy hardcore into drum and bass so smoothly you know like mixing oil and water together to move the night and then so I actually um, think that that was part of the the backbone of Vibelite having a, a really strong residency the, the, the brushing the Peter Pan thing come from the top bus scenario, having a duo that worked really well together, that understood each other. And and that expanded, you know, as, as other DJs and MCs become collaborating artists with each other. You know, Majika took with Carl Cox, uh, Storm with Cy. So the old Vibelite name and logo really came from as wanting just put an event on. And... Uh, we sat around the table and we came up with what we call a three event plan. Right. So we had to put the money in for three events, whether nobody turned up at any of them at all. And there was sort of unwritten rules to those, the three event plan. The, um, was the first one, the first one was going to go ahead no matter what happened. The second one either had to be more attendance or it had to have a better atmosphere than the first one. And by the third by the third event, you'd be breaking even and starting to make money and starting to produce, you know, starting to. So how much how much cash did you have to put up front to, to ensure that happened? I can't remember off the top of my head. Probably about fifteen twenty thousand pound between us. Between how many of you? Well, this is it. You see, they, we all had the choice, and it boiled down to the people that was wanting this to happen and that was in uh, enticing us was to go ahead and produce it was Majika and Mongoose and Russian Peter Pan, really. Uh, well, mainly Russia, I would say. Um, Peter Pan came in a bit later mm. uh, when Vibelite started. So we all sat around a table. We got things together. We said what we was going to do. We came up with a concept we wanted to put things right. Um, things that we thought was wrong with the rave scene at the time, you know, the production side of things, um, I wanted to take that on board. I love doing the production side of things. So, so that's basically, Majika came along, he introduced me to the Adrenaline Boys who was the flyer design guys at the time and became did all our flyers i think they did dreamscapes and quite a lot of big promoters um flyers but we had we had a concept of what we wanted the name but i don't know what we was going to call it i'm sure majika might remember i'm sure he'll come up with something i can't remember but we hadn't come up with a name and then mongoose bought in this margarine tub that said vitalite on it and we just changed the word to vibe alive, which encompassed everything we was about. Light vibes, you know, high in atmosphere, knowing attitude. Um, we didn't want that attitude. We didn't want people getting mugged. You know, there was rumours going around that people were getting mugged at raves and stuff. We, had, we hadn't seen that. But it was, it was part of the scene that we wanted to stamp out. Uh, the overcrowding, making people unsafe, we wanted to stamp out that. The understanding that as a raver by three, four, four or five o'clock in the morning, you was out with money. Um, you had no water. You were sharing water with friends. You understood all those sort of aspects. So, you know, that's why we cut fresh fruit up and things. We did things differently. You know, from the offset, we did things differently. Um, we, we paid DJs upon arrival rather than at the end of the set. How rare was that? That was never heard of. Right. <laughs> that was never heard of. Right. Um, it it was sort of the DJs would play the set, then have to go and rock and rock him around for the promoters, and sometimes walk away with not being paid, which put a, a bad vibe between the promoters and and the and the DJs. So to, who looked after the DJs as soon as they come through the door, they got paid their wages. Um, that was part of the concept, and that created. A much more relaxed atmosphere for the DJ. They had been paid before they played their set. All they'd got to do was then go up there and play their set. And because he'd been paid, it sort of relieved that 
element. Am I going to get paid? Am I not going to get paid? Right. So the stress was taken out of it. So the, the sets would appear to be better because the worry had gone from it. Do you know what I mean? It was How interesting. It was like, it was unheard of. The other things that we did was um, put times on flyers. That was one of the first things we did. We put the times on the flyers because there was all these rumours going around then that DJs weren't booked, the promoters weren't booking them. Um, so we put set times underneath the flyers, right? which automatically knew you'd book them. <laughs> was that the, you, were you the first people that did that? We were the first people to do that, yeah. Right. yeah. I was the first people ever to do that. You, you look at the flyers, our very first flyer, our second flyer, had the set times under them, and it, com it encompassed that, basically. Uh, and that got rid of that sort of problem. You know, and you, you knew that, as a raver, you knew that that DJ was put. You wouldn't be putting a time there if, they, if that DJ wasn't on. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you, you had confidence. I mean, that did come to bite us back in, in the uh, the very first event we did. <laughs> uh, when uh, LSD didn't show up. <laughs> so, you know, the very first event we did, it was an amazing atmosphere. It was near on capacity. I wouldn't probably say it was capacity. It's probably about 800 people. Okay. Um, which was a good attendance for a, yeah. a weekly a venue. I mean, we, we was doing we decided we were going to do monthly um, we decided on September and Hot Trot was going to fill the gap that Renaissance had left after they left the club and they was going to do the Saturday night with more housey uh, Tony DeVitz you know and uh, Judge Jules and the, the Sasha sort of side of things with the crowd they built up they was doing a two o'clock club and they wanted to do an all-nighter so they came on board on the Saturdays and we took the Fridays um, but we had to convince the owners of the venue that they get to give us three months, basically, and we would pay them a fixed fee for those three months. But in by the third month, we'd have to have a, a third event going for, to make it work for us. We were paying a flat fee for the venue and hiring the venue. Um, bearing in mind... This was at, there was no tickets online or anything like that. It was all private membership clubs. So you bought a ticket to Renaissance or Vibelite. You had to ring up 24 hours in advance and you had to become a member, right? If you come to the venue with your ticket and you wasn't a member, you either had to get a friend that you knew that was a member to sign you in or you wasn't allowed to come in that venue. That was a strict rules and regulations strict very strict rules and regulations that we was bound to but we had no license <laughs> we, you know it was unheard of it still is to this day really um so, so what was the, what that, was, so what was so what was the reaction of the ravers on that first event and it was full to capacity and um well it wasn't you... quite to capacity it was always the dubious and doubters i don't think the first one was but the second one was um, and what, I, was your, you know, what was your reaction that you were getting from the ravers to your event? Well, going back to the raver, it was the best night that had ever happened at the venue, without a shadow of doubt. You know, it was it was an awesome event. The lineup we were only having like Groove Rider and Fabio was probably the biggest DJs that ever been there. Uh, you know, there was no one had put five or six named DJs on. We were trying to copy the biggest, big style events, the amnesia houses. But it soon became clear that you was doing it for yourself and for your friends. So if someone wanted drum and bass, you know that they want drum and bass. If I, I like the techno and the trance sort of stuff, so I was more into that side of things. But I became... The way the events was planned was more like how a DJ builds his set. So a DJ would build his set, bearing in mind back then, DJs would be playing two-hour sets. You know, by the time you got to the big raves, it had gone down to an hour. Um, so you'd build your night up with a warm-up DJ, and then you'd play a little bit of happy hardcore. You'd drop the mood down a little bit, while a bit of drum and bass, and then bring it back up. And then, you know, go into a bit of techno, or, uh, you know, and, and, then, and then repeat the whole process again. And, but always leave the crowd wanting more at the end of the night. That's how we always finish the night. So it was a whole process that, you know, that, that we sort of done. 
So I, I couldn't play a record, but I could build a set knowing what what a DJ would bring to that environment. I didn't want a DJ to try and fit into that environment. And the strong residency base that we had would allow us to swap from one music to another. And it's those residents knowing the position that they held within that club and that they should shine a light on, you know, that it wasn't about them becoming big name DJs. It was about them having a residency and being able to pick up with the DJ and, and, and drop the vibe a little bit too low or who hadn't played the way he was expected to. They was, they was the, the backbone of it. You know what I mean? There was a whole backbone of it. I mean, there's other people, the backbone. I mean, we're all in this together and any part of the people played in this, in this entire 30 years of scene, from your ravers to your your unsung heroes like the Glennises and the Daves, they all played a part in what is the history of this dance music scene. Um, going back to the early days, we had the guy who was um, designing the flyers for Zest, a guy called Matt Wright, who owned a company called the Humble Heart Company. And he was he was in a world of his own. He was he was so far out there with some of the stuff that he was doing. So we decided um, we'd work with him and we'd create sets for every night that we did. Um, every night had a different set theme. It resembled the flyer, and then the events became later became more about um, themed events. You know. Uh, so it, it it progressed really quickly. You're looking at it. Um, so you know, by the third event, which was the Carl Cox concept, the the first event, like I say, we probably got about seven eight hundred in. But the the telltale sign was, I say, as was LSD not showing. That was like my worst nightmare. You know, it was four or five o'clock in the morning. We got the name numbers on the flyers. He was definitely booked to come to the event. We had a contract, right? So I, I, I hadn't experienced this. I, I, everything was done. It wasn't, you know, my fault. But as a raver, you were horrified that this would happen. Do you know what I mean? And especially on your first ever event. So... We got on stage at four o'clock and I got the MC Majika at the time, showed a contract, read the contract out, didn't tell him the price or anything like that. And what I decided to do, it was four o'clock in the morning. Knowing as a raver, you're out of money at four o'clock in the morning, was to do a deal with the owners of the venue, uh, with the guy that was decided to run the bar. And I spent the whole of his wages on water. And we had a pallet of water delivered up to the stage and we just gave it out. Nice. As a raver, couldn't ask for more. It was brilliant. This is the contract. This is what we're going to do. This is the money that we would have paid him. Thank LSD for this drink. And one of the residents are going to come in and fill that spot because that's all we could do. That blew up. That was unheard of in the rave scene. Nobody had ever heard anything like that. Promoters was like, what the hell are you doing? Why? You know, it was like dumbfounded. It was it was like Murray from Dreamscape. He was, this, why? Why would you do that? In it for the experience. You know what I mean? It was a different mindset to being a promoter. And so after we'd done that first event, we understood that we was different types of promoters, if you know what I mean. We'd come from the rave scene. And I'm sure a lot of promoters did come from the race scene. I know, for instance, that Murray, bless his, rest his soul, he, he came from the rave scene. Um, but then there was businessmen that tried to cash in on the rave scene, you know, and I wasn't a part of that. I wasn't aware of that at the time. 
Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now in all video platforms, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. All donations will be plowed back into the podcast, including expenses to get around the country, interviewing some of your rave favourites, and also improving our equipment. 